look forward here now to continue talking about prayer. Uh, I will say that it definitely has affected me in the last couple weeks as I sit or kneel to pray in what we've learned to this point and, and looking at Jesus' model that he provides now today, I expect we'll be enlightened even further. You know, when I was a little boy, I was taught to pray. I was taught a familiar little prayer before I went to bed. And uh, I don't even recall, honestly, who taught me this prayer. And there, there are many variations of this prayer, as, as you'll probably find a familiar yourself. I would pray this. Now I lay me down to sleep. I pray, my Lord, my soul to keep. If I die before I wake, I give the Lord my soul to take. I needed to pray that prayer. God sent someone to teach me that prayer. And what I recall most about praying that prayer is I had no confidence at all who God was. Yes, you know, I'd I'd been given some ideas about God. I had been told that he had a son named Jesus. Well, I didn't have any faith or assurance of any kind that any of that was real. I just prayed. I questioned what I prayed, but I prayed. And in a fact, sometimes when I prayed that prayer, I was terrified. I was truly afraid that I might die before I wake. I was. I'd lay in bed and I'm like, I was tormented by the fact I didn't know. Where would I go? Is there a God? Is there a hell? Had no idea where I would end up if suddenly my heart stopped in the middle of the night. That's one of the things that an eight-year-old will think laying in bed at night. Isn't it interesting? So the fact that I had no inclination where I would go proved that I didn't have any saving faith in Christ. Born-again Christians know where they are going. In the close of his first epistle, the Apostle John provides a summary of why he wrote that letter. He says in 1 John 5.13, These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. As an unbelieving boy, kneeling by my bed, praying to be spared from judgment, the question arises, does God hear the prayers of an unbeliever? Does he answer them? Well, he answered mine. And we also find in Scripture in Acts that a man named Cornelius, a centurion, was praying before he was a believer. He had not heard the gospel yet. Yet the Lord said, I have heard your prayer. And he sent Peter to him to proclaim the gospel. And Peter and his whole household heard and believed. So it's important to teach unbelievers how to pray. Someone taught me how to pray. Someone taught Cornelius how to pray. It's a good way to do uh, do that by modeling prayer for them. As I mentioned last week, uh, as you meet people who are in the hospital, people who are struggling, believer or unbeliever, it is good to model for them right then and there what prayer looks like. Pray for them there. Encourage them to pray right there on the spot. Just don't tell them, I'll pray for you, and then forget about it as you drive home. But you know, unbelievers aren't the only ones who need to learn how to pray. Christians can improve as well. I believe today's text will help us to do that. I believe it's especially designed by Christ to help us to be more effective in our prayers. 
It was after an entire night of prayer that we find that Jesus chose the twelve. Well, these men didn't have a whole lot of theological knowledge. They were fishermen. In fact, they didn't have, besides calling fire down from heaven, a whole lot of practical ministry skills. They were green, weren't they? They were green. But they learned everything as they followed Jesus. And they witnessed amazing healings, powerful powerful preaching and teaching, and hundreds of other miracles in Jesus' three-year ministry. And they often saw that after ministering to these multitudes, healing them, that Jesus would very often retreat to himself for prayer. And then we see in the account in, in Luke chapter 11 that it tells us about one occasion after Jesus returned from praying that one of the disciples asked this. It says, It happened that while Jesus was praying in a certain place, after he had finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, just as John also taught his disciples. The disciples must have sensed some kind of connection in Jesus. Miracles, prayer. Preaching, prayer. Healings, prayer. We can anticipate they saw this because they also saw it in John's life. John the Baptist, they said, Lord, teach us to pray just as John also taught. They knew that John the Baptist taught his disciples to pray. They know he was a man of prayer. And both Jesus and John were powerful preachers who did a lot for the Lord. God used them. They had boldness, and the disciples finally understood that both of these men, Jesus and John, had a commitment to prayer. It was a common denominator between their ministries. And even today, we've come to observe that virtually every notorious preacher, every flourishing church, every transformational ministry... Every genuine revival in history has been accompanied by people committed to pray. The disciples had determined that if their lives were going to count, if they were going to matter for the kingdom of God, if they were going to be used, it was in some way going to be proportionate to their willingness and ability to pray. So they asked Jesus, teach us to pray. The disciples needed it. You and I need it. So let's turn together at that which is known as the Lord's Prayer. This is what Jesus preached to the crowds during his Sermon on the Mount. It's found in Matthew chapter 6. And this is essentially the same prayer that Jesus provides to the apostles when they ask him how to pray in Luke chapter 11. The fact that Jesus repeats this same structure of prayer on two separate occasions in two different settings with two different groups is significant. In verse 9 he says, Pray then in this way. Of course, Jesus doesn't simply intend for us to memorize and recite this prayer. There'd be no heart involved with just meaninglessly reciting this prayer. But Jesus does urge his followers to adapt, in some way, our prayers to this model. Which way does he mean? We'll we'll discuss that in a few moments. But before teaching us how to pray, 
Jesus takes the same opportunity in this sermon to tell people what to avoid in prayer. He presents two very strong prohibitions concerning prayer. Jesus said, God doesn't want these. So look with me at Matthew chapter 6, verse 1. Beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. Beware. Take heed in the King James. Prosecco me in the Greek. It's a strong warning. Be careful. Be careful of what? Acting righteous in order to be noticed. Don't do that, he says. And the first example he gives in verses 2 through 4 is concerning giving money away. The second example is in verses 5 through 6, and it's concerning prayer. But we can notice in both situations that people love to be noticed. Look at verse 5 where it pertains to our topic today of prayer. Jesus exposes this problem. He says, when you pray, you are not to be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners so that they may be seen by men. Truly I say to you, they have their reward in full. Some people just can't wait to stand in prominent places. And in the synagogues on the street corner, Jesus says, so that others are forced to take notice of them when they pray. Jesus says they're hypocrites. Why? It's because they suggest by their outward behavior they have one motive, to be righteous. But in their inward behavior, in their heart, their motive is to be seen. And the only reward Jesus says that they're going to receive is you're going to be seen by man. That's it. They do get noticed a lot of the time. Their notoriety isn't even all that positive. People just get annoyed. But there exists a remedy, Jesus says. He gives it here. He says, do your personal prayer secretly. Look at verse 6. But you, when you pray, go into your inner room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. If you neglect praying in private, but do so in public, we're talking private prayer here to be seen, we're not talking corporate prayer, that indicates only one thing. The only reason that you're praying is to be seen. If you don't pray at home, but you're seen praying in public somewhere, you just want to be seen. You aren't praying to God. That means you're praying to men. Fortunately, for those who might struggle with this and struggle with the application, Jesus provides three very simple instructions, three steps. Go into your inner room, close your door, pray in secret. That simple. For personal prayers, Jesus always withdrew to privacy. He was alone. He would go off by himself. Christians don't pray to be seen. In contrast to that, what we witness during the week and on Wednesday evenings are corporate prayers. Those are prayers that not only petition God, but they edify and encourage one another. Don't get those confused. We can petition God together. There's a second prohibition, and it's vain repetition. Avoid it. Verse 7 says, And when you are praying, do not use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do, for they suppose that they'll be heard for their many words. So don't be like them, 
for your father knows what you need before you ask him. God knows everything you need before you ask him. You don't have to be like a broken record going over and over again, repeating the same thing. You're intelligent. God is intelligent. Just ask him. This prohibits a prayer that, or a phrase from being repeated over and over again at the same sitting. You find this in many traditions where a phrase is a mantra or a chant that is done repeatedly over and over. Jesus says that's not intelligent communication. It's rote. And we need to understand uh, in a Christian context, as Christians, to be polite, this does not um, prohibit a weekly recitation of the Lord's Prayer or the Apostles' Creed. We have brothers and sisters in Christ who attend a more traditional setting. They appreciate the creedal expressions of faith, and it's not a violation of this principle for them to recite the Lord's Prayer every week. That's not what Jesus is talking about. Uh, If they decide to declare prayers or creeds that are theologically accurate and offered to God honorably from their heart and intelligently from their mind, there's nothing wrong with that. We shouldn't criticize them for that. That is their liberty. Uh, You'll find many in our theological camp, the non-creedal camp, um, that will recite lots of things. We'll recite a favorite hymn. Sometimes we'll do it every second, third, or fourth week. But if the church across the town recites the Apostles' Creed once a month during their communion, we say, ha! Vain repetition! No, it's not. That's not what Jesus is talking about here. So leading into the Lord's Prayer, we already see that Jesus encourages us to be honorable and intelligent in our prayers. Not to be seen, not mindless repetition. And now in verse 9 he says, Pray then in this way, Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. The first line in this prayer is acknowledging a relationship. He's telling those listening to the Sermon on the Mount that they can address God as Father. In fact, in every prayer recorded in Scripture that Jesus prays except one, he addresses God as Father. This was a radical departure from the Jews. They didn't like this. They didn't do this. It infuriated them. In John 5.18, it tells us, For this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking to kill Jesus all the more, because he not only was breaking the Sabbath, but also was calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. So when we address God as Father, we're recognizing the fact that Jesus is the Son of God, and that we've been adopted into the family of God through faith in Christ. We can then, and only then, have the privilege of addressing God as Father. Every soul on the planet is a spiritual offspring of somebody. Everyone has a Father. It's either God or Satan. This was a radical... How how can you tell which is which? How do you know which is the Father? It's simple. Children act just like their fathers. 1 John 3.10 By this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God. What does that make them? Children of the devil. We ourselves, we know, were formerly children of wrath, Ephesians 2, 3. 
But for Christians in Romans chapter 8, it says, You have not received a spirit of slavery leading again to fear, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons, by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Holy Spirit himself testifies, it says, with our spirit that we are children of God. We are adopted children of God. So we can cry out to him in our time of need, Father, help me. But God isn't like our earthly fathers. Second line speaks of God as being holy. Holy be your name. Now this isn't a solicitation for us as believers just to make a declaration. Holy is God's name. No, this is written in the form of a petition. In actuality, praying this, we're asking God, make your name to be regarded as holy. Holy be your name. It's striking that in this open, opening petition, Jesus indicates that our highest priority would be circumstances would develop so God's name would be regarded as holy. Our highest focus in prayer is not that we get that sought after promotion at work. It's not that we get accepted into our favorite school or our favorite club. Jesus doesn't add anything that resembles that to this prayer. We're asking God to create circumstances that would magnify his name as holy. You know, in many of the Bible epistles, the letters that are written by the apostles and their close associates, uh, Christians are called holy ones. We're known as saints. We are holy. Holy means that we're set apart. We're set apart from common usage. We're considered special from in every way. It means you and I have been set apart from what is common and what is defiled in the world. God said, be holy as I am holy. Separate yourselves. Our first priority when praying then is to pray that God's name will be regarded as holy. Well, theologian R.C. Sproul says, one of his books, quote, By placing this as the first petition of the Lord's Prayer, Jesus was giving it a place of priority. He was saying that a proper attitude towards God's name is the basis of everything. Because, we, because how we live before God is determined by our attitude towards Him and our view of who He is. No worship, no adoration, and no obedience can flow from a heart that has no regard for the name of God. Now, I know that everybody has different struggles, but in regards to this, and I know not everyone goes through the same process of sanctification. I struggle with sins you don't. You struggle with sins that I don't. But when I first became a believer as an adult, I had often profaned the name of Jesus prior to that. I worked in an uh, environment that used lots of profanity in lots of ways. When I figured out who Jesus really is, when I came to faith and was born again, I could no longer profane the name of Christ. It's holy. It's separate. Society just wants to desecrate it on television and everywhere. We need to try to remember that God's name is very special. It is holy. The second petition is this. Your kingdom come. Jesus moves directly from the veneration 
of the name of God into the manifestation of the kingdom of God. Let me ask you, do you anxiously desire God's kingdom to be made manifest? Well, you know, back in the time of Samuel the prophet, they didn't. Israel didn't. You know what they preferred? They preferred an earthly king. Yeah, they wanted an earthly king and an earthly government. They rejected God in, a, in an attempt to live like their neighbors. Listen to 1 Samuel chapter 8. That's where we read, Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel, and they said to him, Behold, you have grown old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint a king for us to judge us like all the nations. You know, at first glance, we look at this and we can reason to ourselves that the reason that they no longer wanted the judges that God appointed was because Samuel's sons were corrupt. The scripture indicates that that's not actually the reason. The real reason is they want to live like the pagans around them. And in verse 7 of that same chapter, it says, The Lord said to Samuel, Listen to the voice of the people in regard to all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, Samuel, but they have rejected me from being king over them. Like all the deeds they have done since the day I brought them up from Egypt, even to this day, in that they have forsaken me and served other gods. So they are doing to you also. They wanted to forsake God's kingdom. It wasn't so much about Samuel's sons. They wanted to serve other gods. And you remember what happened? Remember what God told Samuel to tell them, to instruct them, what they're going to get with an earthly king? Samuel tells them, a king will take your sons from you. He'll take his, your resources from you. That king will build armies. He'll see, seize your harvest in order to build weapons of war. He'll steal your daughters from you for his own delight. He'll seize the fields and the groves and the seeds and the vineyards, and he'll transfer ownership of them to his friends. He'll take your servants, both male and female. He'll take your, do your donkeys and a tenth of your flocks. Wow. That king's going to take a lot, isn't he? Samuel told them, In that day you will cry, but God won't hear you. Meaning he won't listen. What's their response? Oh, good advice, Samuel. You're right. You know, that would be a bad deal. No. It says, Nevertheless, the people refused to listen to the voice of Samuel, and they said, No, but there shall be a king over us, that we may also be like all the nations, that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. They wanted an earthly government that would permit them to act like their pagan neighbors, secularism. They wanted a king that would judge them. They wanted a court system. And they wanted one, a king that would fight their battles for them. They wanted national defense. They didn't want God's kingdom to come. Aren't you glad we don't have that problem today? Yeah. We're in America. We love God's kingdom and we love liberty, right? No, we don't. We don't. As a nation, 
We like to elect an earthly government according to our desires that will allow you, if you so choose, to live like the pagan neighbors around you. Secularism. They'll forcibly tax you, redistribute your your money and your resources, your wealth, to their friends. The population asks for a government system that will take care of us. They want want to provide a court system. That means that uh, they can apprehend criminals. We like that. We want one that will fight our battles. National defense. We want that. And one that will provide us all kinds of security and welfare. And we joyfully turn our money over to the government as long as they'll take care of us. Hmm. Not a lot has changed, has it? We don't primarily vote as a nation. I know as Christians we do, but we don't primarily vote for righteousness. That's why the candidates are always avoiding talking about it. They don't want to talk about righteousness. They don't want to talk about the unborn. They'll avoid that. They don't want to talk about godly marriage and preserving that. People aren't concerned about voting for that. What they want is their handout, their business subsidy, their program. That's what people vote for in America. That's why they're always being offered it by the candidates. Then they say, just let us live how we want to live. We want to live like the pagans. It's just like our neighbors uh, and Israel. They don't want God's kingdom. They want an earthly kingdom that will allow them to do what they want. You know what the whole irony is here? Christ came to offer God's kingdom. And the sinful flesh of man said, you know, I I don't want that. I kind of like it the way it is. In fact, I'd like things a little more relaxed, actually. In fact, Jesus was tried and convicted on the grounds that he was trying to make himself king. Therefore, Pilate said to him, so you are a king? Jesus answered, You say correctly that I am a king. For this I have been born, and for this I have come into the world to testify to the truth. Sinful people don't want to know the truth. They don't want a righteous king. They don't want a righteous government. They don't want righteousness at all. They like it how it is. As a result of this, it says in John 19, 12, Pilate made efforts to release him. But the Jews kept crying out. What did they say? If you release this man, you are no friend of what? Caesar, the earthly king. Everyone who makes himself out to be a king, they say, opposes our earthly king. Now, the United States, we know, is a a representative republic. We elect people to represent us. The reason that the government sanctions all that it does, abortion, legalized, differing definitions of marriage now coming up, all types of immorality, no-fault divorce. The reason they do all that, because they want it. That's why the larger part of the population votes it in. They want it. I would, I would, uh, I would guess today that if Christ were to return as he came the first time, if he were to come and walk the streets and go from business to business, club to club, 
bar to bar, preaching repentance and righteous living, and tell them the kingdom of God is at hand, people today would nail them to a cross all over again. We don't want that, they would say. But what do Christians want? We want his kingdom to come. Jesus told Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. We say, good. I'm glad it's not part of this world. We pray that Christ's kingdom will be advanced in this world through the proclamation of the gospel, through repentance of sinners, through salvation of souls. And that's what we mean. That's what we're expressing when we say, your kingdom come. We're ready. The next line says, your will be done. I think we covered this quite sufficiently last week as we looked at Elijah, how he was always attempting to follow God's will. He was following what he had heard from him spoken. As we said in that message, as we look at the Bible now, as we read the Bible and we see God's will, we attempt in all ways to pray that we will align to that. I think that was sufficiently covered. Um, That message is online if you want to go deeper into that. We commit ourselves to his will being done. That's what we want to see. And where do we want that done? The next line, we'd like to see that done on earth as it is in heaven. And we know, of course, there's no sin present in heaven. God's will is done in heaven. That's what he's saying here. We would like that here. Christians would like it to be so on earth. You know, no one in heaven, not the seraphim or the cherubim or the spirits of men that are there before God, do anything to violate God. They're there doing His will in heaven. And that's what we're going to be someday, is doing the same thing. That's what makes heaven such a contrast to what we're living in here. Heaven's not like this. It's not heaven on earth. It's heaven instead of earth. And when you pray like this, you're asking God to establish His will on earth as it is in heaven. You pray that He'll advance the goal of His kingdom that is coming through your life until ultimately Christ returns and forcibly establishes his will on earth. This phrase also echoes the last words of the Bible where Jesus says, Yes, I am coming quickly. Well, we respond, Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Now, finally, we get to what we'd like to know about a little more. This is where we would have started, most of us, myself included from time to time. We get to the physical and the spiritual needs that we have. I never thought we were going to get here. We're here. And Jesus invites us to pray for what? Basic necessities. Basic necessities. Give us this day our daily bread. Is that it? You mean Jesus doesn't say in here to pray that my mutual fund's going to explode? doesn't say, hey, pray so you finally get that third home in Costa Rica. Boss will double my salary. No. He actually says we don't need, need to pray for those things. Why? Well, look later in this same chapter. You're already there. Remember, we're in the Sermon of the Mount. And just a few verses down, it'd be in verse 25. Notice this same sermon. Jesus tells us why. He says, For this reason I say to you, do not be worried about your life as to what you will eat or what you will drink, nor for your body as to what you will put on. 
Is not life more than food and body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air, that they do not sow nor reap nor gather into the barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? Do not worry then, saying, Well, what will we eat? Or what will we drink? Or what will we wear for clothing? For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. And listen to this. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. That's what the prayer model, isn't it? And all of these things will be added to you. So don't worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will take care of itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. The Apostle Paul tells us in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 8, If we have food and covering with these, we shall be content. But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a, stare, a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. Perhaps that's why Jesus says in verse 13, Do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. That petition is a favorite of mine. Of course, we know from James chapter 1 that God does not tempt anyone to sin. But we do know that God allows us to cross paths of temptation in order to test us, to strengthen us, to refine us. Some theologians say that a better translation of this might be, Lord, do not allow us to be led to the place of testing. Isn't that rich? We can pray to God to not bring hard testing. Lord, spare me of hard testing so that I don't have to deal with that. So I don't have to suffer consequences if I fall. Lord, spare me. You're allowed to request that. Do you find anything in in Jesus' model of prayer or this chapter 6 about praying for wealth or prosperity? I don't. In fact, Scripture just said that with food and covering, with these you shall be content. So if we spend most of our time praying for wealth, what is it showing? You're discontent. You can't say that you're content and always be praying for wealth and money. That doesn't demonstrate content. That's probably one reason that Jesus doesn't include a lot of material things in this prayer. And then he says later, don't worry about it. Your Lord knows you need it, and he'll give it. We shouldn't spend enormous amounts of time praying for these, enormous amounts of energy praying for these. Jesus is saying that, I know what you're asking, we shouldn't take personal and maybe seemingly insignificant cares before God. I don't think that's what he's teaching in modeling this prayer. I don't think that's his point. What I think he is teaching us, there's one thing today to learn, is he emphasizes the kingdom of God while minimizing the material things of life. He's he's reminding us, prioritize. Pray first for the kingdom of God, for God's will. Keep things in perspective. When we pray, we always pray, God's kingdom first, God's will first. So do you prioritize that when you get on your knees to pray? And I would say, uh, don't be dismayed with this. If you are praying God first, I believe Scripture would instruct you to bring anything 
that is within God's will that aligns to his righteousness and scripture, bring anything to him. And he will hear and he will answer. As we close this three-week series on prayer, I believe we can commit our hearts to Philippians chapter 4, verse 6, where we started. It says, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Go ahead and pray for that wisdom concerning that job offer. Go ahead and pray that God will preserve your health or restore your health. Pray that God will bless your job and your business so you can provide well for your family and have money to share with others. You can do that. It says, let your requests be made known to God. Just don't let your requests become your God. Finally, Jesus closes this model of prayer by magnifying what we all desperately need. That is forgiveness. Verse 12, And forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. Verse 14, For if you forgive others for their transgressions, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, then your Father will not forgive your transgressions. These debts here that Jesus mentions are not financial debts. They're spiritual, moral debts. They represent how we continually fall short of God. Two of the most uh, long-standing components of Christian prayer are known as confession and what? Forgiveness. Christ includes both here. Confession. Forgive us our debts. That reminds us to regularly acknowledge how often we fall short, how we fall short of Christ's righteousness. We acknowledge that. And then forgiveness, forgiving our debtors, reminds us that we must forgive those who offend us. Why is that? Why would we need to forgive others who offend us? It's because if we, when we do so, we authenticate that we're behaving like And acting like who? The one that we belong to. God. We act like Him. We forgive like Him. That means He's our Father. Remember, you look like one or the other. By forgiving, you're demonstrating, not that you're perfect. You're you're demonstrating the, the desire to give means that you're a child of God. You want to forgive as Christ has forgiven us. So do you spend much of your time when you pray in confessing and then forgiving. Hmm. There are a lot of people that are trapped by this inability to forgive. They suffer, they lay awake at night, they're disgusted because there are certain people that have offended them, they just can't forgive. I just can't do it. I've heard people utter this. Can you consider the, the price that God has given to forgive you? Think that, that throughout all of history, the whole history of mankind, thousands of years, God has had to endure 
the sinful rebellion against him. He's overlooked countless offenses by millions of people and billions of people, fornicators, adulterers, murderers, thieves, and liars. He's tolerated this. Then he finally has one. He has one who lives righteously. He has one on the face of the earth that obeys all the time. He has one that reflects God's holiness perfectly. He has one that is sinless. He never offended God in anything. Then God, in order to proclaim to the entire world the preeminence of the Son, gives a voice from heaven. A voice comes from heaven. Now it's amplified through Scripture. And it's this declaration. This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And then, for God to hear those same sinners that prefer to live in a godless kingdom then accept his son's righteous kingdom then cry out, crucify him. Then God poured out all the sins of man, our sins on Christ at the cross so that we can be forgiven. And what does God say? As far as the east is from the west, he has removed his sins from us. He's completely forgiven us. And the cost that the Father had to pay through offering His Son to those who defended Him. And then to not forgive someone who's offended you? How is that acting like our Father? Is He your Father? You know, you can settle that all right now. You can settle that once and for all. You can make Him your Father. You can pray to Him as your Father. And God will send His Holy Spirit into your life. He'll come into your heart so you'll want to serve Him as Father rather than the Father of this world, the ruler of this world. And He'll give you that power to forgive. It won't be easy. We all struggle with it. But He will give that power to you if you understand that you're a sinner separated from Him. Would you like to pray that right now? Would you like, for the first time in your life, or a repeated time in your life, say, God, I want to know you, I want to forgive others, and I want to love you. You can follow along with me. I'm going to express a prayer. It may be what's in your heart. You may express your own words. Well, let's pray to God now and ask him to forgive. Dear Father in heaven, Your name is holy. And Lord, we pray here today in Port St. Lucie Bible Church that your will would be done. And Lord, we know that your will is that sinners would repent and be saved and trust in you, Lord God. Lord, if if there's someone here who, who hasn't known you, I'd pray that they would pray this prayer in their heart right now, Lord God, or something similar to it that would express their trust in understanding who Christ is. It pray, Lord God, I'm a sinner. 
Lord, I've done a lot of evil deeds, a lot of wrong things, Lord, and I now know that you're offended by that, Lord God. Lord, I, I didn't realize the cost before, the cost that it was to you to sacrifice your precious son to stand in my place for the punishment that I deserve, Lord. Lord God, to hear that, that there's now a righteous king, one whose kingdom is coming, Lord God, I want to be involved with that. Lord, I, I know that Christ conquered the grave. Lord, I know that he's alive, that he's living for you, Lord, and I'd like to live my life for him. Lord, would you help all of us here together live our lives for him? Live a life that honors you, Lord, and help us to pray that your will would be done. Lord God, forgive us all for what we are. Thank you for sending your son to die for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.